The scripture verse for this morning comes from Luke 15, 11 through 24. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. That is a good word, isn't it? That story is a reason to celebrate so much. And we're going to talk about that today. Well, but good morning. I'm Jeff. I get to serve on staff here at the church. So thankful to be sharing with you this morning. Now, we're in a series entitled Messy Stories, Faithful God. We're looking at different stories in the Bible and, and seeking to relate them to our own story. And the underlying, the underlying message in all these stories is this. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be here this morning and be struggling. The stories we have looked at today are filled with people who have struggled Deeply, life choices, physical disabilities, hardened hearts. And the reason we can come this morning and say it's okay to not be okay is because God is faithful. Because God is okay. And we're going to see that in such a beautiful way in our passage this morning. Now this story, the prodigal son, is the messy story of all messy stories. It's the goat of messy stories. The greatest of all time. The Michael Jordan of messy stories, the godfather of messy stories, the Gretzky of messy stories, the San Diego is the finest city of messy stories. And I think the reason for this is because this story is one we can all relate to. It hits to the core of our DNA, the very bottom of our soul. It is who we are. This story is the story of you. It's the story of me. And Jesus is going to teach this story in what's called a parable. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you're new to the Bible, 
He often taught in parables. This is the most famous of all the parables. Um, and parables are simply uh, relatable stories intended to communicate deep spiritual truth. Now this is not a, new st- a true story, but it is a story intended to relay deep truth. And it is a very, very special story. It connects with us on a heart level because it deals with acceptance, with meaning, and ultimately with love. Kent Hughes, he writes this about the gift of of this story. He says, a story illustrating love in the most fundamental of relationships will readily be understood by all. The parable could be called the parable of the prodigal God because the word prodigal can mean extremely generous or lavish. And the story is primarily about the lavishness of God's love. But the parable also gives us a unique opportunity to take our own spiritual temperature by observing how we relate to God's extravagant love through the characters of the two characters. And these are the two themes I'd like for us to sit with this morning. First, the first theme I'd like you to consider. Now, as Sally Lowe-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, a beautiful kid's Bible, I hope that you would start to understand through this parable, maybe in a fresh way, God's never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Let me say that again. This is how Sally Lloyd-Jones describes God's love for us. Never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And if that is the kind of love you've been looking for all your life, you are in the right place today. Second, as we dive into this messy story, would you be able to think deeply about your own story? Was there a time in your life when you identified as the prodigal? When you walked away from God, from your family, from the life that you knew, where you abandoned everything? Maybe this is the season for you right now, this prodigal season. So we're going to consider the love of God in light of the prodigal stories, and we're going to hope to connect it to our own story. Now, if you know the story, you know the younger son, the prodigal son, is one of two brothers, the younger son and the older son. The end of the story focuses on the older son, but we are not going to get to this older son today. You'll have to come back next week to hear about his story. But it's a good one. It's a story about a son as lost as the prodigal, but in a different way. Now before we jump into our text, what's really important is we consider the audience with which Jesus, or who Jesus was teaching to. Okay? Up to this point, Jesus has been traveling around the countryside, healing and teaching, often in the form of parables. And if we look at just a chapter before, Luke 14, 25, says this, Then now great crowds accompanied him. Okay? So there's all these people there. These great crowds would have been typically the common folk. Poor people, people that heard about this great teacher and had come out to hear him teach, to learn from him. Okay? That's one part of the audience. The second part comes out in Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. All right? So we have... We have the tax collectors, we have the sinners, we have the marginalized, the lowest of the low. Tax collectors, people who steal 
from their own people. Sinners who are often um, looked at as the prostitutes, tax, tax collectors and prostitutes. These are the lowest of the low in that culture. And it got me thinking, as we think about this story and who Jesus often spent time with, who would it be if they walked in that door that you go, ooh, I don't know if they belong here. Like who in our culture are the tax collectors or the prostitutes? You go, makes me a little uncomfortable. And then we'd watch as Jesus would make his way through this space and sit with them and hang out with them. And after church, you'd watch Jesus go get lunch with them. And you go, hey, what, what, what about me? And I'm going to let you wrestle with that a little bit. But these are the people that Jesus often spent time with. The lowest of the low. And the third group, the final audience at the end of verse 2 of chapter 15, the Pharisees and the scribes, says they grumbled, which they often did. This man receives sinners and eats with them. These are the religious leaders. Pharisees were the Jewish religious leaders of the day. The scribes were the interpreters of God's word, also known as the teachers of the law. That's our audience. That's who Jesus is teaching to. Now this parable focuses on three characters, like I mentioned, but we're only going to look at two of them today. We're going to look at, and these will be our teaching points for the morning. Number one, the younger son. Number two, the father. These two very important characters. So let's start with the younger son, the rebel, living for himself with little care for the well-being of others. Let's start with Verse 11, he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he he divided his property between them. Now each son would have been given an inheritance of his father's wealth upon his father's death, ideally. The older son typically received a double inheritance because more responsibility fell on his shoulders. If you're an older child in the room, would you raise your hand? Now, all those that aren't raising your hand, look around. Look at the people that are raising their hand. These are the older children, like myself. You guys will never understand the burden we carry, the weight of responsibility. I want to just get that out of the way. You know, but sons of the ancient Near East were responsible for the well-being of their father. They cared for their parents in their old age. Daughters were typically given in marriage to go live with other families, right? But the sons were the parent retirement. And I thought of this joke last, last night. You can tell I'm a little under the weather, so I apologize in advance for this one. But um, do you know what 401k stood for back then? Stood for, I've got 401 sheep. Go take care of them, okay? That's it. From the Greek, I promise. Um, now the younger son, for reasons we don't exactly know, is done with his life on the farm. Life with his family. Here's what he's saying to his dad here. Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what you owe me. I'm out. I'm going to go do it on my own. I'm going to go do it my way. He had to get out of that house. We don't know why. He had to go strike out on his own, forge his own path, and he abandoned his family to do that. Maybe some of us here can relate. Listen to this old poem by Rudyard Kipling entitled, the prodigal son. My father glooms and advises me. My brother sulks and despises me. My mother catechizes me till I want to go out and swear. Anybody relate to that sentiment? 
Anybody remember what it was like to be in high school and college and wanting to get out on your own? I remember that, which is awkward because my parents are in the room right now. <laughs> but growing up in San Diego, I was like, I have to try something else in life. What's the op 180 degrees from San Diego? Waco, Texas. Sign me up. I'm in. And I went to Texas, right? Now, I didn't take an inheritance, maybe when the cost of college education, but I had to go. Maybe some of you can relate. You just, you've got to go. And part of the question is, why didn't the father just throw him out? I'm not giving you the inheritance. And I think this starts to cue us in on the deep wisdom and love of the father. where He knows what the son needs at this point. And he gives it to him. He lets him go. Now, the son takes the money. Imagine getting an inheritance and living in Vegas. The son gathered all he had, took a journey to a far country, and he squandered the property in reckless living. He's the most popular guy. He's got it all. He's loving life. Everything's great, right? But those of us that have really lived the prodigal life know that what starts out great doesn't end great. And there's some point in the middle when you start to question, man, this isn't satisfying my heart and my soul like I thought it would. Hughes paints a good picture of, of this and helps us understand maybe some of the thoughts he started to go through. He writes, now he could buy anything, even other people. And he did. But after a while, though he was more popular than ever, life was not quite as exhilarating. There were new pleasures, but also deeper degradation. Even before his money ran low, even before famine came, there were times when he thought of home, but only a passing thought. You relate to that? When sin goes, this is the best it can be. And then there's that nagging in the back of your mind that you go, it's not everything it promised. I was thinking about this and it reminded me of this famous quote. It said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now, this is such a good quote. And I Googled it. Who wrote that quote? Do you know who wrote that quote? Ravi Zacharias wrote that quote. Or it was at least it was attributed to him. A man who lived a deceptively sinful life double life. And we can shake our heads at the hypocrisy of Ravi Zacharias, but the reality is all of us at one time have been deceived by the enticing promises of sin. We've all wanted to be like God. That's what the serpent told Adam and Eve in the garden. Eat this fruit and you will be like God. That's why this parable is so relatable because all of us, to some degree, as when we come aware of who we are. We want to be like God. We lean that way. And even though it's heartbreaking to learn of the double life that Zacharias was living, his quote still rings true. But I think as, I, as I've been dwelling on it, I think it misses an essential gospel-centered component, one that would have helped him tremendously, and it's this. Unrepentant sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. This is why we have a confession of sin every third Sunday here. It's why we want you to be in community with other believers 
We want you to be known. We want you to be confessing sin with one another. Because unrepentant sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. But repentant sin is wiped away. It's gone. It's forgiven. How does this happen? Let's keep reading. We'll understand. We'll look into that. Verse 14 as we continue. We had spent everything. Money's gone. Friends are gone. The amazing life he had is gone. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Everyone's gone. His identity's crushed. Despair starts to set in. Despair so bad that he becomes a servant of a Gentile. Remember, he's in a foreign land. A horrible humiliation for a Jew. Then this man, on top of that, goes and sends him to work with pigs. Right? Which would have been an unspeakable degradation for a Hebrew. A Jewish swineherd. Then the desperation hits another level. When he's so hungry that he wants to eat the pods that the pigs eat. Now, I don't know, now there aren't a lot of pig farms in San Diego, but when I was volunteering at a, at a camp in Arkansas in college one summer, we would take all the food from the cafeteria, and we put it in these big trash cans, and we'd throw a lid on it. And then every week a farmer would come, pick up those trash cans, take it to his farm, and dump it out for the pigs. And if you opened that trash can lid to put the food in, especially when it's 95 degrees and it's 100 degrees humidity, it was an immediate dry heave. It smelled so bad. I cannot imagine getting to the place where you want to eat the pods, the garbage, the, the rotten food that the, kids want, the pigs want to eat. Or the kids. <laughs> you know, new level. He wants to eat that pig food. But then it goes a step below that. As you look in the text, we're, they won't give him any. Right? He is at the lowest of lows here. These pigs are more valuable than he was. But then he comes to this place. And he goes, wait a minute. This is 17. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? I'll go. I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You might read this and think this is a very reasonable response. After all, he did this to himself. And if we were to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the prodigal, I think our internal dialogue would be similar. It would be something like this. I made a mistake. I screwed up. I blew it. I'm nothing anymore. I ruined the family. I'm not worthy of anyone's respect or love and should be treating, treated as a servant and punished for my actions. What kind of response is this? This is a response of regret. I regret the decisions that I've made. And I'm going to close the door on my wild living. I'm going to accept responsibility. I'm going to accept the consequences that come with my actions. I deserve all I'm going to receive. Regret. 
if we're honest, how many would respond in that way? I know that it's my default. Punishment myself for my mistakes so I feel better about my decisions. Punish myself for my mistakes so I feel better about my decisions. Regret, this is something that I'm learning in my life, friends, is a denial tactic. With regret, we create scenarios as a way to justify or deal with our regret. Which is exactly what this young man does. I will go back and be a servant. That's how I'll justify what I have done. And as we take a second to think about our own story, our own life as a prodigal, have you created agreements in your own life? Have you created scenarios or justifications for your behavior? How have you dealt with the decisions in your past that did not end up well, that did not go as planned? You see, I don't think the younger son has found redemption at this point. A lot of people point to like, he's realized his sin is heading back. I don't think that's true. I think he's gone, I messed up. I'm going to go back and I'm going to live as a servant. Because that's what he is. He's coming back as a servant and not a son. He's not coming back looking for love and forgiveness from his family. He's put himself in bondage. But thankfully, thankfully, he has a loving father. Let's conclude with our second character, the father. Now what is true for this young man, what's true for us, is that love and forgiveness don't start with us. 1 John 4, 19 says what? We love because he first loved us. You are loved, you are redeemed, you are forgiven because he first redeemed you, forgave you, and loved you. And so the young man arose and he came to his father. And this is where the story gets really good. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now this is not the appropriate action for the patriarch of a house. They don't run. They don't pursue. But this patriarch, this father, is giving us a picture of God's love for us. Back then they would have had long tunics, and so the father would have had to pull up his tunic, expose his legs and his sandals, and run to his son. How does this picture of God line up with your view of God? Is your view of God a God that when you make mistakes, when you go through trials in life, do you see a God that's running toward you? For me, I often go like, oh man, I messed up. Like, I gotta get four or five good things in a row before I feel confidence to step back into his presence as if, as if I'm waiting for God to hit me with a lightning bolt but that's not the God of the Bible it's not the God that Jesus paints here this is a God that sees his child knows everything he's done runs to him now if this doesn't fill your heart up with love and appreciation it, and humility, and all those things for our Heavenly Father, two things are happening. Number one, you might be still in the middle of reckless living. You might be a prodigal. You haven't turned your heart fully to God. That's okay. So thankful you're here wrestling with who God is in your life. 
And the second, and this is a teaser for next week, you might be the older brother. I realized many years ago that I was the older brother in the story. But you're going to have to wait till next Sunday to unpack his journey. But look at verse 21. The son is still trying to communicate regret for his actions. His father does all this for him. And the son goes, no, no, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father will have none of it. He embraces him. He kisses him. He won't let him go. And though we don't read it in the text, I believe that he allows the young man to grieve for the first time. He's been living in this regret. Here's all that I'm going to have to do. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to work for my father. I don't deserve this. And his father goes, no, no, you're my son. And he hugs him and he embraces him. For the first time, the young man can grieve. This is the never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God that allows us to grieve the pain in our life. And that grief leads us to redemption. There's a very famous painting on the prodigal son by Rembrandt. I want to bring that up really here right now. If you look at this painting, you see the father obviously in the middle. You see the older brother looking down on his younger brother, both dressed in beautiful tunics and robes, light on their faces. But you see the younger son. If you look down, you'll see one of his shoes is off or one of the sandals is broken. Head shaved. He's in less than desirable clothing. But what is that posture? That's posture of a five-year-old that's gotten in trouble. It is grieving at their parents. Father embracing him, allowing him to grieve, to be welcomed back. This is the beauty of grace. There's no lecture from the father. There's no, hey, before you come back in the household, you need to understand a couple of things. Hey, here's, here's what your life's going to be like now. I mean, we want to welcome you back. But listen, your inheritance, you're going to have to earn it. No, no, there's none of that. There is an embrace, a kiss, puts a ring on his finger. Let's go celebrate. Because like it says in verse 24, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Remember Psalm 35 that we've talked about a couple times during this series, that weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Grieving leads to rejoicing. N.T. Wright writes that where resurrection is occurring, where new life is bursting out all around, it's not only appropriate, it is necessary to celebrate. Resurrection, the son was dead, he's now alive. Let me encourage us as we close this morning. Friends, grieve your sin. Grieve your past. But don't put yourself in regretful bondage. You are not a servant. Those of us that have chosen to follow Jesus, you are a son and daughter of the Father. 
And I believe through grieving, through going through our stories, that we will understand and our hearts will be open to the redemption we have in the love of the Father. God who's running for you to you, who has compassion for you, who longs to celebrate you. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're exploring Christianity, let me encourage you with this. The Father's sitting there and he's looking for you. He's waiting for you. All of your stuff, all of your shame, all of your sin, all of your failure, longing to run to you, inviting you to come home. He wants to take it all. Because that's what he did. He sent Jesus into the world to take all of our sin on his body so that we may be sons and daughters once again. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. To become a Christian is simply to follow Jesus. It's to give him all of your sin and to make a decision to follow him, to be king and Lord of your life, to embrace the love of the Heavenly Father, a love that is so different, so much deeper, so much more amazing than any love you'll ever have in your life. So I'll pray for us. I'll give you a little moment if you're not a Christian and you want to follow Jesus to do that. Real basic, nothing major. But it's a heart change just to go, man, I want to know him. I want my life to be different. And then we're going to, close, we're going to sing a song together. But would you pray with me? This parable is overwhelming, God. To just think of the God that created the universe and this world that created me and created you. That loves us so much that would run to us despite our sin. I go, no, no, you, you run for me if I'm doing well, if I'm perfect, if I'm making the right decisions, but that's not what we see here. We see a father running to a lost, hurt, sinful kid. Embracing him allowing him to grieve, changing his heart and inviting him into this celebration, which we know ultimately is an eternity with you, a relationship with you, to be a part of your kingdom, God. Kingdom established by Jesus as he came to this earth. Established, a kingdom that was established through the cross and his resurrection. And we get glimpses of that kingdom here as we worship together, as we commune with one another, as we are the church. And so, for my friends here that aren't Christians, just a simple prayer. Lord, I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to get to you. But there's something you have done to allow me to be your son and daughter. So forgive my sins. Thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for me, who, wrote, who defeated death and sin in his resurrection. Change my heart.
God, I long to follow you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.